Well, uh, connections and relationships can be uh, great things and they can be really uh, challenging things. They can be hard, they can be good. Connections can form in different ways as well. We can be connected um, with ideas. We can be connected with things, uh, uh, ways in which we think, ideas and thoughts. And uh, Maybe you are studying something perhaps at university and you're really connected into uh, a particular way of thinking. Um, I don't know whether you're doing something in sport or something in English or science or whatever it is. Uh, one of the things I find really interesting about Christmas time is it suggests, not necessarily just by looking at the Bible, but right the way across the whole of our cultural approach to Christmas, again and again we get little suggestions about another kind of connectedness. Um, I, I'm doing it again, I think I do it most years. In the lead up to Christmas, I read uh, Christmas Carol, one of the great uh, kind of classics of English literature. Charles Dickens goes right the way back to when I was a, when I was a kid in in uh, the choir in junior school, and our head teacher used to read us a Christmas Carol. What does that do? It su- suggests, doesn't it, a kind of connectedness to uh, the supernatural, the the outside of this world. Uh, And again and again, I don't know whether it was just Dickens who started that, but again and again we have the idea of some kind of connectedness to to the unusual, to the supernatural. In fact, the more I observe the world that we live in today, the more I think that people are increasingly open to the idea that the things that we see and the things that we touch are not the entirety of everything. That there is something more. There is an extra dimension. There is a spirituality. Now, one of the things that I guess we do is we, we have the opportunity to decide what kind of spirituality we want to think about. One of the things that the Bible sort of breaks into our thinking. And one of the things that Christmas does is it introduces us to a definition of the other, of the supernatural, of things that we don't see and we don't necessarily observe on a day-to-day basis. And yet deep inside of us, we kind of know that there must be something more. Christmas, the Christmas story, the first narration of that first Christmas event defines for us, from a biblical point of view, from a God's point of view, precisely what is meant by that other dimension. One of the things that we see in the account that we read earlier is that that kind of connection connection with that kind of dimension can be fearful, it can be wonderful, and it can be personal. We're going to have a look at those three very, very quickly. The first thing that we see is it can be fearful. Here we've got, um, and those of you who were able to be here last week, you noticed that the reading that we've got this afternoon is the same as last week. 
The reason for that is that we can spend just a few more minutes this afternoon thinking a little bit about it. Here we've got a group of, uh, you know the story I'm sure, a group of shepherds, ordinary men who are out at night doing their job, just going about their job, a normal night's work. Some of you might work nights, some of you might have worked nights, and uh, you know what it's like, it's hard work working nights, isn't it? And here they are, they're out at night time, out on the hills, outside of, of Bethlehem, which is a number of miles south, southwest-ish of Jerusalem. Here they are, just probably wrapped up in blankets or, or, or kind of covers surrounding a little fire, just protecting sheep. That's their job. It's a normal night. I want you to imagine just for a minute what it, what it was like that night. Here they are, they're just chatting. Maybe some of them are sleeping. They probably took turns. Those of you who work nights know that very often that's what you do. Uh, we'll keep an eye on things. You get your head down for a few minutes and then we'll swap around and then you can keep an eye on things while I get my head down. So maybe some of them were just having a bit of a sleep. And they were chatting, just keeping an eye on things. And then all of a sudden there is this dramatic connection that is made. And the connection is precisely what I've been suggesting. It is a, a breaking down of the separation between the dimension of the spiritual world and the dimension of the natural, physical world. In other words, the reality of heaven and God's creation for a moment in time breaks through into their world while you sat around just watching sheep. I don't know what you're like. I'm not really that great watching scary movies. Not really my bag. Um, some of you might love it. Um, suddenly getting shocked and, and feeling that quivering in the stomach and the blood rushing either to your head or out of your head, however you want to describe it, that rush of adrenaline, that kind of sudden fear is precisely what this group of men who were up on the mountain, on the hillside, felt that night. Why? Why did they feel that? Well, pretty obvious really, isn't it? Because something out of the ordinary, something supernatural was happening around them. But there's something more that's going on. What, they, what we instinctively know as being real, we kind of, we, I, I, let me give you an example. We can't live with the idea that the end of a life is just the end of the life and that's that. That's just one little indication that we know deep down that we feel as though there has to be something more. We think about that far more these days than possibly for generations. That something more breaks in to their world. And the result of that inevitably... Is fear. They're scared. 
That's why the very first words are these in verse 10. Fear not. Fear not. In other words, here's one biblical definition. The idea of the supernatural when God is communicating to us in a loving way means that we must not fear. It's one of the things, one of the definitions of who God is. He is a God who reaches out and says to us, do not fear. When his messengers approach us, in that sense, he's saying, do not fear. So this dramatic occurrence starts with the words, do not fear. It's like a calming. Don't fear. I bring you good news, great joy that will be for all people. God is making a connection at that moment with humanity in this world. Silence has been broken, and that challenges our thinking, I guess, of the idea, some of you might even have said this, the idea that I look around and the world is such a dreadful place, there's no sense whatsoever that God has got any interest if he even exists. Christmas tells us Christ in physical form, which is what Christmas means, Christ in body, Christ mass, means that God is engaging with this world. He has not forgotten about it. It's good news. So the first connection that you and I have the opportunity to think about over these next few days is it's not fearful. Why is it not fearful? It's not fearful, we can go on and say, because it is wonderful. What makes the difference? Look at what it says. Well, well, let me read to you what it says. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And you kind of say, you're saying to yourself as you read that, well, what is the good news? You're saying I'm, I'm bringing you good news. What is the good news? The good news is for unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord. What is the good news? What makes this connection wonderful? What makes Christmas wonderful news is precisely that verse, precisely that declaration. To you is born in the city of David, in Bethlehem, just a mile or so down the pathway there, is born in that city right now a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, that is such a phrase that if we've read our Bibles, if we've got Christmas cards over the years, it's probably a phrase that we're just so used to. It was a dramatic declaration. It was a massive statement. The word that we've got there, Christ, is the Greek word for the word Messiah, the promised one. 
In other words, we could rewrite that sentence a bit like this. Born in the city of David, or let's change that as well. Born in Bethlehem is a savior, the Messiah, the Lord. What does that mean? It means, for those who are hearing it, shepherds on a hill, it means this, that all of the plans and all of the declarations of God for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the past have now come to fruition. The promised one, the Messiah. How do we know that God cares about this world? How can we be confident that the God who the Bible describes is a God who does love the world? One of the ways that we can be sure is because the connection is wonderful in this way, that God is prepared to take hundreds and hundreds of years to prepare the human race for this moment in time. It starts at the very, very beginning where God says to Adam and to Eve, with a little hint, it's going to work out. There's going to be an answer to the problem that is now gripping humanity. And then over time, little by little, God molds and shapes and adds to with different promises, with different ideas, with different thoughts, so that over hundreds of years, through his people, he says to the whole of humanity, there is going to come a promised one. (laughs) Those of you who are football fans will kind of get a kind of hint of where the idea, the promised one, has come from. You know, Jose Mourinho called himself the promised one, didn't he? It's not actually going, well, I'll reserve judgment to tomorrow night. I want one all, but that's kind of, never mind. He called himself the promised one. It's, it's a reference, you know. It's an idea back to the Bible. Jesus is the original and ultimate promised one because God was promising him for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of years. I don't know about you, but I cannot guarantee my plans for the next few days. Not guarantee. I've got plans. I know what I'm planning to do. I know what I intend to do over the next few days, over the next few weeks, over the next few months, but I can't be sure. I can't be absolutely sure, can I? Neither can you. All sorts of things can get in the way of my plans. All sorts of things can bring disruption to what I've got planned for my life. You can interrupt it. I can interrupt it. Other things can interrupt it. There are all sorts of ways in which we all interrupt each other's plans. But God says, here's the moment in time that I've been telling you is going to happen. Born in Bethlehem is a savior, the Messiah, the promised one. 
that's what I've been telling you is going to happen. And nothing can stand against my plan to bring my son into the world. That's what that verse says. Born in Bethlehem is the promised one, the Lord. The Lord is an an astounding claim to make. Nobody outside of God himself, in biblical terms, can ever claim to be the Lord. And yet the declaration that breaks in, the connection that is made for those shepherds that night is down in Bethlehem is the promised one who is no less than God himself. The Lord has come into the world. What an amazing claim. So what we see is initially the idea of the reality of God connecting with us can be fearful. And the first statement is to quell those fears. The second statement is to tell us how wonderful it is. But the third statement is inevitably a connection which becomes personal. It becomes personal. You see, the shepherds, I guess, this is how the story unfolds, the shepherds hear that declaration and they have a decision to make at that moment in time, don't they? (laughs) In a sense, I guess when something like that, which is so dramatic, happens, you're left really with not much choice (laughs) but to respond to it. But they did have that decision facing them, didn't they? What do we do with that statement? We've been told that in that, in that city just down there, in that town rather, just down there in the town of Bethlehem, has been born a baby. And you'll find him in a manger wrapped in cloths. And this is who he is. We've got to do something with that. And our action can be one of two things. We can act by doing nothing. I want to really make that sounds like a contradiction, but it is an active decision to do nothing. That is a decision. It's an action to stay put. When something so dramatic happens, to not do anything is an active decision. We don't know. I I don't know. It implies that all of the shepherds went down into Bethlehem. It suggests that that. It's not absolutely clear. Who knows? Maybe one or two said, I'm not doing anything about this. What I do know is that if we make it personal, there have been lots of people who confronted with the claim of a baby born who is the Savior, the promised one, no less than God himself, have made the active decision to do nothing to just treat it as an interesting historical fact or something to be disbelieved. I guess the way that it becomes personal is when we hear that declaration where we see the connection is being made and we respond to it by saying something like this. 
something like the response that the shepherds made. Well, they left their responsibilities, caring for the sheep. They went down into that town and they found the baby precisely as described and they worshipped that baby. That is, a, you know, in human terms, it's a weird thing to do unless it's the right response to the kind of declaration that's been made. So if you hear what you've heard, then it's the right thing to do. If you just walk up to a baby and start worshipping it, it's strange. You don't do that. And yet their response is precisely, I want to suggest, the appropriate response for the declaration that has been made. It's a way which says, I'm not just listening to it, I'm embracing it. I'm taking that idea that the one who is promised is God himself and he is a saviour. Now the way to say, how do I know that saviour is my saviour? How do I make that personal? I make that personal by changing my relationship with him. By worshipping him, in essence. By him becoming my Lord. See that? It's actually all contained there in that one declaration that the angels made. The one who has been promised is the Lord but he becomes my Lord. He becomes the one who I worship. He becomes the one who governs my life. He becomes the one who rules over me. A tiny baby. But we know that he didn't stay that way. His governance became a life lived out, which is perfect in this world and sinless before God, A life which actually, if we saw it in practice, in in all of our quiet moments of isolation, we would all aspire to. A life which is consistent, which is faithful, which is honest, which is truthful, which has a clear conscience consistently before God. We might not want to admit it, but we would all want to live that life. And then we see that By him becoming my Lord, it's as though I've lived that life. That's how he becomes my Savior. We watched a little video last week, which is fantastic. One of the lines which really grabbed me, been thinking about this through this week. The baby who was stretched out in a wooden manger became the man who was stretched out on a wooden cross. That sense of irony there, isn't there? Sense of irony in this way, firstly, that both of those are incredibly humiliating experiences. A baby born in a farm shed You know, we have got this cutesy kind of idea of the manger. The reality is that Jesus was born in the most broken, humble context. 
It was laid out in a food trough for animals. And he died, stretched out, nailed to a Roman cross. Both of those profoundly humiliating. But the great news is, is that very humiliation of Jesus is what makes him my Savior. It's, it makes him my Lord. I want to encourage you as we close, maybe just for you to think, over these coming days, with all of the fun and all of the enjoyment, we really hope you have a great time over these next few days. But we do hope you ponder on the idea that connection with the supernatural can be fearful, but connection with the supernatural reality of the living God can be wonderful. But that connection is only wonderful when it becomes personal.